You ready for some word today? I'm excited this morning. It's been a fun two nights. I, I love talking about Jesus. I particularly enjoy talking about Jesus in the house of my friends. We get to laugh together, cry together, enjoy Christ together, see his, his picture and his face in the scriptures. I'm going to take you on another little journey today in the Bible. I want to take you back to a very familiar story. I will meet you in Matthew and we'll be in the third chapter. I want to start today. We're going to title this to fulfill all righteousness. All is a word we've used in each of the first two sermons. All means all, right? I heard someone jump in there. All means all. We've talked about all being imprisoned. Uh, we, we've talked about all that ever came before Jesus being thieves and robbers. I want to talk about all righteousness and this one straight from the lips of Christ again. And what all righteousness would mean, because one of the things that you've probably coming to an understanding, hearing more about grace and the love of God and the finished work, you've begun to understand that righteousness is not something you go out and do. Righteousness is a condition that you have received because of Jesus. You know that because the Apostle Paul said that God made Jesus to be sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Sometimes we call that the great exchange. What we mean by that is that Jesus became everything wrong with you so that you could become everything right with Jesus. I want to amend that a little bit and say it this way. Jesus became everything wrong with you so that you are everything that's right with Jesus. Jesus isn't taking on your sins any more than you're taking on his righteousness. He took on your sins so that you take on his righteousness. You will not be more righteous tomorrow than you are today because Jesus isn't going to take more of your sins tomorrow than Jesus has already taken today. How many times did Jesus die on the cross? Once. For who? For, who? for all. He died once for all, which means he took all of our sins and he gave us his righteousness so that we don't have to go about trying to establish our own righteousness. And when we do that, we'll do it through the works of the law. We don't know any other way because it's deeply inbred in the heart of man that he gets good when he does good and he gets bad when he does bad. And we transpose that over onto God and said, we must get more if we do better and we must get worse if we do worse. That's not the definition of God's righteousness. And so I want to take you today. Interestingly, we can do all of that at the cross because we could go to Calvary, preach the cross as the place where Jesus takes your sin. Then we could go to the resurrection and preach the empty tomb as the place where you get up out of the grave and you live in a newness of life. But I want to go way before the cross early into the life of Jesus because I want to show you that God is so determined to declare you righteous that even before Jesus shed one drop of blood, he already had your righteousness in mind. And I want to start in Matthew chapter 3, and I want to read a little bit about the character John the Baptist. This is the precursor to Christ. I want to take you to the Jordan River where John is preaching, and where John is preaching a very specific message in those days, verse 1, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent. 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'll stop here just long enough to remind you that the word repent is from the Greek word metanoia, and that the Greek word metanoia means to change your mind, to change your mindset, which is why if you haven't changed your mind, you are not repenting actively. So if you say, well, I've not changed my mind, I believe the same I believed yesterday, that's not as much of a brag as you think it is. All right? The only people not changing their mind are people not growing up. As you grow in grace, you're going to change your mind a lot. I encourage you, repent daily. Repent daily, change your mind daily, find something that you can think differently tomorrow than you thought today. So John says, repent, change your mind. What, change your mind about what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is not a place in the glory land, a place we like to call heaven. This is a kingdom. And where does John say it is? It's at hand. How far away is that? Well, that's pretty close. Now, of course, we know it's not literally at hand. You don't reach out and grab hold of it. But it must be close enough that he believed you were going to catch it pretty quickly. Which is why it's really beneficial to keep reading the story. Because we want to see what happens next. This is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Now, John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. There's a lot we could say about that, but we'll leave that for it's not for the purposes of this message. Then Jerusalem, verse 5, Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. I want you to focus on that sixth verse for a moment. The world of that day came out to John. They came out from where they were. This is a type and shadow of coming out from the life you live to go meet your salvation, whatever the kingdom looks like. We come out from where we are to go meet the kingdom. The kingdom is at hand. And they confessed their sins and were dunked in the water. And John has begun a process that heretofore has not been done this way. We don't see an Old Testament where people are getting dunked and baptized. However, Judaism had a lot of washings. Washings of hands, washings of the head. They had the going through of the Red Sea. They had the going over of the Jordan River. So for them, the imagery of baptism was as important as the actual baptism because the imagery of baptism marked the passage from an old place to a new place. When they were baptized in the Red Sea, how many of you know they never actually got wet? But in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul says Israel was baptized into Moses at the Red Sea. Well, what did he mean? He meant they went from one place to another place. That's baptism. To go from where you were to go to where you meant, are meant to go. And you go through the waters, you go through the flood, you go through where it is that you are so that you can be where it is that you need to go. And so John himself is clothed in camel's hair. Everyone comes and confesses. That last part of the sixth verse is what's important because they are confessing their sins. So each person, every one of them that is uh, every one of them that is walking uh, up to John brings something to the table. What do they bring to the table? Confess their sins. So they walk away from where they were to go into where they're going. And what they bring to the table is everything that's wrong with them. Right? right? right. No money. No promises. No commitments. They don't sign a card. They don't join the church. They just bring what's wrong with them. So that tells me the first thing that, it, that, that we ought to be looking for when we bring people in through repentance, through baptism, is just let them bring what it is, they're looking, what, what it is they have. Everything that's wrong with them. 
We ought, we ought not be knocking people down for what is wrong with them. We ought to be accepting that as the currency that they have to receive the righteousness of God. So let me start over. God made Christ to be sin so that we could be made his righteousness. What did we give? Our sin. What did he give? His righteousness. So when people bring the worst of themselves in, they're qualified for the righteousness of God. Right? So let them bring the worst of themselves in. Because when they bring the worst of themselves in, they qualify for God's righteousness. They qualify for who he is. Now, I want you to jump from six because there's some things that happen. John the Baptist addresses the scribes and Pharisees. It's awesome stuff. But for purposes of today, I want to jump to 13 because I want to introduce Jesus into the story. In verse 13 of Matthew chapter 3, Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me? Now, let me ask, why would John stop Jesus from being baptized? In case you didn't catch it, look back at verse 6 again. What do you do when you get baptized? What are you supposed to bring? Your sins. How many sins does Jesus have? He takes all of ours, but how many of his own does he bring to the water that day? None. Why? Because he hasn't sinned. So why does John stop him from being baptized? Because baptism is for sinners. And John sees Jesus and goes, oh, wait, 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 wait a minute. I can't baptize you. In fact, we'll find that John says, you got to baptize me. I, I can't baptize Christ. Christ ought to baptize me because it's a sinner that needs to go into the waters because it's a sinner that has their sins to offer. You don't have any sins to offer. So why are you coming to me to be dunked? I need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me. Verse 15. And this is it. Jesus answered and said to him, permit it to be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness and then he allowed him. In other words, and then John baptized Jesus because Jesus said to him, baptize me now. I must do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. And that's the point I want to make today. That's our title to fulfill all righteousness. Whatever is righteous from this point on is represented in what Jesus does in these waters of baptism. I must do this to fulfill all righteousness we're going to come back to that 16 when he had been when he had been baptized jesus came up immediately from the water and behold the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of god descending like a dove and lighting upon him and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying this is my beloved son and whom i am well pleased now we're going to get into some of that uh, a little bit deeper into that well pleased and we're certainly going to get a little bit deeper into that righteousness in a moment but i want to pause for a second before we go a little deeper and I want to remind you of something that's easy to forget or easy to look over in this passage. Jesus comes up out of the water and the Bible says a dove comes from the heavens and rests upon him. In John's version of this story, in John chapter 1, John the Baptist actually sees the dove as confirmation. Because in John chapter 1, John says, uh, It was told to me that the one upon whom I see the dove descending, that is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So in reality, the dove came out of the sky for John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist kept waiting. He kept saying, there's one coming after me who's preferred before me. I'm not the one, but there's one coming. And so every day he keeps preaching this. There's one coming, there's one coming. And you know, every time somebody came that looked a little different, he might have thought, there's the one. Because the Israeli mind, going all the way back to Saul and David, was the king's tall, strong, 
the old tall, dark, and handsome thing. And that's what they kept looking for. And so God tells John, don't look for the stuff. Don't look for the outside. I'm going to show you which one is the one. And so when he dunked Jesus in the water, whatever that looked like, maybe he poured water over his head, maybe he laid him back. I know we get all excited about how you're supposed to be baptized. Although there's no formula in the Bible. We don't, you can go straight down, you can go straight back, you can fall face first, they can splash water over your head, they can pour a cup of it over your head. What, there's no, it's, it, it literally in the Greek means immersion. So you get under some water somehow. And so however he went under, when it happened, the dove comes out of the heavens and that's a sign to John the Baptist. And John goes, this is the guy. This is the one for whom I'm supposed to get out of the way because he's the one to come. But the voice that speaks, the Bible says, they heard a voice, but in the Greek, they both saw and heard the voice, which is interesting. So they knew that what they were hearing was God. And what does God say? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Let me break down beloved because beloved is not a word we use. So let's say it this way. This is my son whom I love very much. I'm pleased with him. Here's my question to you. How many sick people has Jesus healed? At this point in his ministry, at this point in his ministry, how many sick people has Jesus healed? Zero. At this point in his ministry, how many people has he fed with a little boy's lunch? Zero. At this point in his ministry, how many dead people has he raised? None. In fact, at this point, he doesn't even have a ministry. At this point, he hasn't done anything. And yet, the voice comes out of heaven that says, this is my son whom I love and whom I am well pleased. And I think one of the most underrated moments in the New Testament is that God doesn't say this when Jesus comes out of the grave. God says this when Jesus comes out of the water of baptism. Because God wants the world to know that His love, His acceptance, and His pleasure has nothing to do with your performance and has everything to do with Him choosing to love and accept you. Jesus hasn't healed anyone. Jesus hasn't prayed over anyone. Jesus hasn't fed anyone. Jesus hasn't raised one person from the dead. And yet, the Father is well pleased. And yet, the Father loves Him, which tells me that God is laying out for us this understanding. God is not waiting on you to do good to let you know that He loves you. God is not waiting on you to save the world to tell you that He's pleased with you. We might be working to please our neighbor. We might be working to please someone. But God doesn't need us to do anything to walk into his good pleasure. And if Jesus is well-pleasing and, and beloved of God and hasn't done anything, then I think I'm safe in saying to you, you are well-pleasing and beloved of God and you haven't done anything. Now you might go, well, hey, no, no, time out, because Jesus hadn't actually done anything wrong, and I got a whole lifetime of doing stuff wrong, so we're not apples to apples here, we're apples to watermelons. I mean, they don't even, they're not even shaped the same. This isn't the same thing, what you're trying to compare, Jesus had nothing. I'm glad you said that, I'm glad you brought that up. I know you didn't, I did, I put words in your mouth. I did that freely because you weren't saying anything and so I needed to help you out there a little bit. I'm glad you brought that up, that you brought a bunch of stuff to the table and Jesus brought nothing to the table. Because I don't want you to forget why he went under the water. You see, John didn't want to baptize him because baptism means you bring your sins. And John goes, I can't baptize you, you don't have any sins. What are you doing? And Jesus then makes this incredible statement, we have to do this to fulfill all righteousness, to finish it up. We have to do this so that we have a proper definition of what righteousness is, John. Because up until this moment, people think righteousness is what they do. 
but I want to show them that it's not what they do. In fact, I'm going to show them the only way into true righteousness. How do we do it? Baptism. Now you might think, does that mean all we got to do is dunk people in the water and that'll move them into true righteousness? No, because what Jesus is doing in his baptism is presaging what he's going to do at Calvary because by going down into baptism, Jesus is going down into death, which he will do at the cross. And by going down into death, he's going out down into death as us. How does he, why does he have to go down as us? Because he has no reason to go into death on his own. The wages of sin is death. Jesus has no sin. How's he going to die? So he has to go into those waters of baptism as me so that he can take who I am into that water and so that he can raise up in a new life. Even though Jesus had no sin, he had to go into that water as if he was carrying my sin and your sin. And it presages the cross. It previews the cross. I'm not saying that your salvation is because Jesus is baptized. I'm saying that your understanding of righteousness can happen right there at that river where Jesus is baptized. Because what happens is you go in as the dead man and you come up as the living man. And Christ is showing us that the definition of righteousness is going into his death so that we can be raised into his life. The definition of righteousness is not the good things I do and the bad things I shun. But the definition of righteousness is who he is. Now, let me put those two things together. What's what's the voice say when Jesus comes out of the water? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's pleasure. That's a pleasure statement. God looks at Jesus and takes great pleasure. And I want to repeat this at risk of saying it too many times. I'm going to risk it. God is well pleased and Jesus hasn't done anything. God is well pleased and Jesus hasn't done anything. Right? All right, so the starting point for God's pleasure must have nothing to do with performance. He just loves because Jesus is his. And he loves because Jesus voluntarily brings who he is and lays it down into the river of death so he can pick up what God wants for him. He'll walk right up out of that river into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. He takes all the equipment he needs into the wilderness to face the things of this world. Because he's showing us that everything we are, we are in Christ. All of our righteousness comes because we've entered into Christ and we we stand up in Christ and we take that righteousness right out here into the world and we go face the enemy. Not facing the enemy because we've got so many days fasting under our belt. Not facing the enemy because we've been given at church. Not facing the enemy because we've been memorizing scripture. Not facing the enemy because we've got the right Holy Ghost church to go to. But facing the enemy because righteousness has been fulfilled in us. Because all those other things can actually stand in the way. And as we learned a couple nights ago, all those other things can actually imprison us. Because we become slaves to doing them rather than just being righteous. So let's start with the basis of pleasure. God pleased in Christ. And let's put that together with baptism. Because Jesus gets baptized. He comes out of the water. God says, I am well pleased. I believe this is the beginnings of the fulfillment. The beginnings, not the end. The beginnings of a fulfillment of prophecy that was laid out in the book of Isaiah. So meet me in Isaiah chapter 53 because I want to go show you a prophecy because in reality, whatever you're looking at in the New Testament will have its precedent laid out for you in Old Testament prophecy. And those prophecies are then fulfilled as you look at the characters of the New Testament. So look at Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 4. Surely... 
He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. I, I want to pause for a moment on one of the most famous verses in Christianity's prophetic history. Surely he, we call this Jesus. How many of you can admit that Jesus' name does not appear in Isaiah 53? Now, why does Jesus' name not appear? Because Jesus hasn't been born yet as Jesus. We don't, they don't know of Yeshua of Nazareth by the time Isaiah 53 is written. But they do know the servant that God is going to send from the rod and the stem of Jesse, to, from the root of Jesse, that's going to belong in the kingly line of Israel. And the conclusion that Isaiah gives is, surely he bears our griefs and carries our sorrows. Those are Hebrew words for he has borne our sicknesses and he has carried our pains. And yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And our first blush when we see this man dying is that God must be killing him. That's our first thought. God's killing him. And that was the first thought on the ground the day Jesus died because the message sent to them from the religious leaders was, Cursed is every man that hangs on a tree. This man blasphemed God. He deserves to die. And so the initial return was God must be killing Jesus. I said the initial return. It's not the final return. The initial return, God must be killing Jesus. But look at the first word of the fifth verse. But. And when you see but, that's a rebuttal. Right? So whatever you saw in the previous verse, we might have some new information for you. Verse six, 5. But he was actually wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him by his stripes we are healed. So God isn't killing him because he didn't have anything to kill him for. There's no guilt. Jesus brings none of his own guilt. He's actually being wounded for my, get rid of our for the, for the, for the time being. Just put yourself in there, all right? He's been wounded for my transgressions. He's been bruised for my iniquities. I carried my own junk to the waters of death and Jesus grabbed hold of my stuff and put it in him and stepped into death so that I could step into death with him. Six, all we like sheep gone astray, we turned our own way, everyone to his own way and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Go to verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see a seed, prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. pleased. Where does that get its prophetic voice? Isaiah 53, 10. It pleased the Lord to bruise Christ into the verse and the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. God's pleasure will prosper in the bruising of Jesus. So as Jesus takes the brunt into himself for who I am and for who you are, for the sin and the evil of this world, as he places himself there on the sacrifice of baptism, we're talking about the cross. The waters of baptism prelude what happens at Calvary. Jesus goes down into the water to say to us, if you'll enter into this, you can receive how much righteousness? All 
righteousness. Now, where in the world do we get off thinking that when we come into Christ, we grow in our right standing? That we're kind of saved, but then we're more saved the longer we've been saved. Now, we go, oh, we don't really believe that. Yes, we do. Sure we do. That's how we preach. That's how we teach. It's how we sing. It's how we live. That guy's just barely saved. I'm not even sure he's still saved. That guy's only kind of saved. Those people down there just think they're saved. I know what it means to be truly saved. I used to think I was saved. Now I know I'm saved. We talk like that all the time. You know what he's doing? He's out there now. He's living like he's really saved. We do it naturally because we honestly don't see all righteousness when we get baptized into Christ. And the reason we don't see it is because we think righteous is acting righteous. We think that what makes people righteous is when they do right. They do right, they must be righteous. Okay, well what if they just did right and didn't know Jesus? Would they be declared righteous by doing right? Oh, we wouldn't buy that. Well, they got to at least start with Jesus and then get to work in order to go do right. It's either Jesus or it's not Jesus. All means all. So when Jesus goes in to fulfill all righteousness, what's he take from you? What's your end of the deal? You walk up and confess who you are. This is why I like to tell people, just stop lying about yourself. Just bring the real you to Jesus. The real you to Jesus is what Jesus died for, not the fake you. The you you don't even know. The you you project. Bring the real you to Christ and lay it at Christ's feet and let Christ take into you who you really are. And as you let him take into you who you really are, you might start to have a revelation of who he really is in you because he's here to fulfill all righteousness. So this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. How is God well pleased? Jesus hadn't healed anybody. Jesus hadn't raised anybody from the dead. Jesus hadn't fed anybody. Jesus hadn't done anything. He's done one thing. He went into the waters of baptism and God goes, I am well pleased. And to the, to the prophetic voice of a man like John the Baptist, who's been preaching Isaiah his whole ministry, there's one coming. I'm, I'm just laying, making his path straight. What he hears is, it pleases the Lord to bruise him and God's pleasure is in the hand of this one. And when he hears God say, this is the one in whom I'm well pleased, he knows that the only pleasure that's prophesied in the Old Testament is whenever the suffering servant takes the bruising on behalf of surely he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. In that moment, the father looks down and says, I'm pleased He has taken the sins of my people. For God, here's the shocker. For God, pleasure is not watching you do right. Too late. He takes his pleasure in Jesus. When you enter into Jesus, when you go into his death, The pleasure that God has on Jesus is the same pleasure that God has over you. And you brought everything you are into Christ so that you could have everything that Christ is in you. God's good pleasure. Jesus then transfers it and says this. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
God gets excited in giving you what Christ brought. Let's slow down here for a moment and make sure we understand it. What John the Baptist say? Repent. Where's the kingdom? At hand. And then here comes Jesus. And Jesus goes into baptism to fulfill all righteousness. This is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. And that well-pleasing one just brought you the kingdom. And that well-pleasing one turns to his disciples and says, it's my father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. How much is God charging you? How much is God asking from you? Nothing. Both nothing and everything. This is the great beauty of the gospel. God's asking nothing actually from you for his righteousness, but what he's actually asking of you is who you are. Just bring me who you are. Everything you got will do. How much does this cost? I like to say this. When, when someone says, how much does it cost to receive God's forgiveness? I used to say nothing. Now I say, how much do you got? Because however much you got, that's exactly the asking price. Because that's honestly what Jesus has done. He gives you everything he is. And you give him everything you are. It's not that it costs nothing. It's that it costs exactly what you have. That's good news. Yes. Abe, how many cars would you sell that way? You, they go, how much does this car cost? And you go, how much you got? And they go, 18 bucks. Congratulations. You have a car. You would sell cars. You just wouldn't have a job very long. They go, Abe, you can't just give people cars for whatever they got in their wallet. This isn't how this works. However, this is exactly how righteousness works. God just asks for what you are. He goes, how much do you have? I didn't say how much you're going to do for me. I just want what you are. You just bring me what you are and I'll give you what I am. Fair deal? Yeah. Well, God, this ain't a fair deal because I ain't much. He goes, that's the perfect price. I'm looking for not much. Yeah, but I'm broken. Perfect price. I'm looking for broken. I got to trade. Kingdom of heaven for broken down vessels. That's the trade value. Whatever you are, I'll take it. That's fulfilling all righteousness. Because if Jesus doesn't fulfill all righteousness, then it's left to you. And this is where you get yourself in trouble. Because you go about trying to fulfill righteousness through stuff. Because you think righteousness is whenever you do stuff right. Right? You do stuff right, then God looks at you as righteous. Let's take this a little bit, let's take this a little bit deeper into the text. J just, just a moment. Go to, go to Luke chapter 12. I just want to take a little run to another gospel account. I want to make sure I make the proper connection because when I'm preaching or teaching, I just like to make connections. I don't like to force connections on you. I just like to lay them out there. And if you want to walk into them, you can walk in. If you want to do something with them, you can do something with them. And if, you, if they don't appeal to you, you can let the Holy Spirit show you where to go with that. So I want to lay one out for you and see what you, what you think of it. Luke chapter 12, verse 49. I came to send fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Wow. Jesus came to send fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. How many of you believe God's a God of love? Yes. How many of you believe that if God does something, it's for your good? So how many of you could just take this chance with me and say that if God sends fire, it must be to purify me. If God were the one sending the fire, would it be to fry me like a crispy critter or would it be to purify me into exactly what I need to be? 
if God is good in your theology, then the fire is purifying. But if you question God's motives or you think that you're in charge of achieving your righteousness, you might think that God's fire is meant to completely wipe you out. And this is why when things go wrong, we blame God sometimes. We go, why'd God abandon me? Why'd God forsake me? Why'd God do this? I came to send fire. I wish it were already kindled. Look at 50. But I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am to live is accomplished. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about? He already was baptized in Matthew chapter 3. What is the baptism of Luke chapter 12? I have a baptism to be baptized with. I present to you that when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, he was giving a presage of the cross. He was showing you what the cross was going to be, which was an actual baptism into the fire of God. He went down into the water. He came up. This is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. He fulfills all righteousness. And then Jesus goes, I got a baptism. I can't wait to get baptized with. And yet Jesus does not go back to the river and get dunked again. So what baptism is he talking about? The cross. Which tells me that the baptism he was baptized in Matthew 3 is a picture of the cross. He goes down into the fire. He goes down into the water. At the cross, he goes down into the fire. Let me ask you this. When he goes into the water, does he come back up? Yes. So when he goes down into the fire, does he come back up? When you go down into the fire of the cross, do you come back up? Yes. You just come back up in newness of life. Whatever he baptizes you into, he doesn't baptize you into for any reason but to take away what you were and give you who he makes you to be. That's following Jesus. That is me laying down what I was so I can pick up who he is. Go to Paul, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. I'm heading towards the end. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. I'll give you a second to get there. This is an important passage. Do you not know? This is a good question. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Great question. When you were baptized into Christ, don't you know you were baptized into his death? I'm just letting it hang there for a minute. The reason I'm doing that is Paul put a question mark on the end of it. He didn't think his audience really got this. I think 2,000 years later, we still need to leave that question mark on there. Don't you know? Because I don't think we do. I think a lot of us think that when we got saved, what that meant was that we don't go to hell, we go to heaven. That's their whole theory of Christianity. Just got to get to heaven. And yet, you were baptized into his death. Now, I just want to walk you through this for a second because you all nodded your head and said amen and agreed that when Jesus was baptized into the Jordan, he was baptized into water. But when he was baptized at the cross, he was baptized into what? Fire. Right? As many of you as were baptized into Jesus were baptized into his death. What were you baptized into? Fire. In other words, the cross went to work reforming, restoring, making you into a new person. You didn't go to work into making you into a new person. The cross went to work into making you into a new person. Your righteousness is not what you do on the other side of the cross. Your righteousness is fulfilled at the cross. 
It's the cross that declares you righteous. You're baptized into Christ. Therefore, verse 4, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father so that I... Here's how we've presented resurrection. We've, here's, here's how most Christians do this. We go, I, am, I believe that someday when I die, I'm going to raise again. You know what I would say? Amen. But I would say, don't just put it at someday. Because Romans chapter 6 verse 4 says that when you were baptized into Christ, you were resurrected or raised into his life. That's a done deal, man. So your resurrection has already started in the man, Christ Jesus. Let me ask you this. In your resurrected body, are you going to be perfectly righteous? Go 10,000 years in the future. In your resurrected body, are you going to be perfectly righteous? It's not a trick question. What do you think? What's your heart say? 10,000 years in the future, I'm in a resurrected body. Am I going to be perfectly righteous? Yes. Amen. Bless God, you bet I am. There's no way God could raise me up if I wasn't righteous. Ding, ding, ding. Now you get it. Just quit putting it 10,000 years in the future. If when you were raised with Christ, you were raised in a newness of life, you are righteous. I'm trying to let that soak. Because see, we don't have any problem going, you know, when I'm resurrected someday in my physical body, I'm going to be right. Amen. Praise God. But what if that resurrection was actually in Christ when you were baptized into his death and the fire made you right and God looks at you and goes, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. Yes. What would that mean? That would mean that your righteousness has been fulfilled when you went into Christ. Right. You don't have to wait to be righteous. You have to wake up to the fact that you are. Yes. And if you'll wake up to the fact that you are righteous, God will stop looking like your enemy and you'll realize that you're well-pleasing unto the Lord. And I think, now, frankly, who cares what I think? But I'm going to throw it out there anyway. I'm just saying that up front. Who cares what I think? But I'm going to throw it out there anyway. I think that once you wake up to your righteousness, it'll actually affect the way you live. Right. It will. However, even if it doesn't, it doesn't change that you're righteous. Right. I want to throw that in. Because I think sometimes we're so excited to get people to, yeah, but when you're righteous, you're actually going to change, that we get lost in whether or not they're changing. The reality is, is that their righteousness hasn't anything to do with what they do. It has to do with they were baptized into his death and they were raised into his resurrection and he fulfilled righteousness and therefore righteousness must be fulfilled in me. And if that's the case, then I am righteous not based on what I do. I'm righteous based on what he's done. One more text, Romans 8. One more text. Chapter 8, go two chapters up. Verse 3. What the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. Whatever the law could not do, because of my flesh, it's too weak to live it. God did it. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. I want to pause right there at the middle of that verse. Look at that likeness of sinful flesh. This is the very reason why John looked at Jesus at the water of baptism and went, I can't baptize you. And Jesus says, you have to. Because sinners are in here getting baptized. 
sinners are getting baptized. And I came to be numbered with the sinners. I came in the likeness of sinful flesh. You got to baptize me. It's important that humanity sees that I'm one of them. Please hear that. Jesus did not come to show you how you could be like God. Jesus came to show you that God decided to become like you. To take you to the cross. To take you to the cross. To go into the fire. To come out in newness of life. And say, these are my beloved kids in whom I am well pleased. That the righteous requirement, verse 4, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Has the righteous requirement of the law been fulfilled? According to this, it's fulfilled in us. Now here's your caveat. I'm going to say this. I'm, I'm, heading, I'm landing the plane. I want to land it with this thought. People will read verse 4 and go, see, pastor, look at the last part of that. Righteous requirements only fulfilled if we walk according to the Spirit. It's not fulfilled if we walk according to the flesh. So what we ought to be doing is up here telling people not to walk according to the flesh because if they walk according to the flesh, they're not righteous. Ooh, tricky, right? Go down to verse 9. You are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit if the Spirit of God dwells in you. So I want to ask you this question. Does the Holy Spirit live in you? Yes. Guess what you're not? In the flesh. So don't get hung up at the end of verse 4 going, well, my righteousness depends on whether I walk in the flesh or not. Paul knew we were going to say something like that. So he says, hey, Spirit lives in you. You're not in the flesh. Spirit lives in you. It's the Holy Spirit that stands up in the newness of life. That's what's marked as righteous. You are righteous because... You went into the fire with Jesus and resurrected into who he is. This is a lot. This is a lot for a Sunday morning. But I don't think it's anything past where you are or anything past where your pastor's taken you in regards to righteousness. I hope I just framed it in a way that gets you to think a little more about your resurrected reality, not your resurrection promised. Because if you can start to see your resurrected reality, you've got to assume that if you are resurrected in him and resurrection means fulfilled righteousness, then what does that mean for you? And what does that mean for me? I do not tell you this today to try to absolve whatever you're doing outside of these walls. Quite frankly, I don't, I don't think it's the job of the minister to dig into what you do outside of the walls. Our job is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. You take Jesus outside the walls or you don't it's your call right you can do whatever you want with him you can take him outside the walls you can leave him inside the walls that is not that doesn't change my presentation of the good news of jesus christ what you do with it is between you and the father it is not my job to try to get you to stop doing things because if i try to preach stop doing things it'll make you righteous i'm not preaching the gospel any longer Righteousness doesn't come by stopping doing things. Guess what else I can't do? Put stuff out in front of you to motivate you to do better so that you'll get more from God. Because then I got you trying to buy God off. All of his favor is now worth a price. That's not my job either. My job is to present to you the good news. 
The king has come. His kingdom is accessible. You're one mind change away. Repent. The kingdom's at hand. Enter into his death so you can enter into his life. And if you enter into his death, you get all the benefits of his life. And one of the benefits of his life is righteousness is fulfilled. So guess what you are? The righteousness of God in Christ. Now, I hope you'll go live like it because I think it's a better life to live heaven than to live hell. And you know how to live hell, but in the righteousness of Christ, you could learn how to live some heaven. And you got to be a fool to look at hell and choose it over heaven. <laughs> Take your righteousness. Live in newness of life. Father, I thank you today for this beautiful group of people. Thank you for Tabernacle of Hope. I love them. And I love this, this pastor. I love their, the relationship of Jamie and Gloria. I love who they are. I love what they represent. I love each of these people in this building, but Father, my love is weak. Your love is perfect. You love them and you know everything about them. You love them and you see their faults and their failures, but you see them as your beloved in whom you are well pleased. Now, Father, I believe that if they knew the righteousness they have in Christ, they'd go walk into that kingdom of heaven in the way they treat their neighbor and the way they live their lives. And I'm believing that that's your destiny for all of us. So help us take that step, that first resurrected step in Christ, in Jesus' name. Amen.